So sometimes silly stories uh, can remind us of important things. And I recently read one of those. It was about a customs officer who served at the border between two countries. And when he saw a truck pulling up, he, it seemed very suspicious to him. And so he invited it to pull over. And then he searched the truck very carefully. But uh, he didn't find anything. The next week, the same driver came through with his truck. And uh, this time, the customs official was bound to find out what, was, uh, what he was transporting. And so he pulled him over and then did a very careful search. And he began to disassemble the truck and look under the bumpers and take off the wheels and take off some of the interior panels. And um, he couldn't find anything. Next week, the same driver came through. And this time, he does the search again. And now he does a full body search of the driver. And then he does x-rays of the driver. uh, But nothing illegal is found. And for years, the driver kept coming back to the same spot, and the customs official could never find anything. Finally, after many years, it's time for the customs official to retire, and uh, the truck comes through. It's his his very last day of work, and the truck comes through, and he says to the driver, I know you are a smuggler. For the life of me, I have not been able to figure it out. This is my last day. I will not arrest you. You will not be prosecuted. But what in the world are you smuggling? Some of you know the answer. The trucks. The obvious. And, and, he, and he missed it. And, you know, you know, there's a danger for us sometimes. We miss things that are obvious. And one of those things that is so obvious, we've said it many times already today, God sent his son for you. God sent his son. And here's a question for you. Have you ever taken that for granted? Just go through your life and you know it, but it doesn't make any difference. It's just one of those obvious things. You ever get sloppy? about taking God's gift for you, for granted. I'm hoping that our passage in these next couple of weeks is just going to continue to bring that God sent his son for you and me into focus. And um, we're going to look at Luke chapter 1, and we're going to start with, and I encourage you to follow on your outline in the program, the first uh, thing is the promised birth of the one who prepares the way, verses 57 through 66, and I'd like to read that passage so we get uh, a sense of what Luke wants us to understand, Luke the writer. So Luke chapter 1 and verse 57, when it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, No, he used to be called John. They said to her, There is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, His name is John. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loose and he began to speak praising God. The neighbors 
were all filled with awe throughout the hill country of Judea. People were talking about all these things. Everyone who had heard this wondered about it, asking, What then is his child going to be? For the Lord's hand is with him. So we see the birth of this special child that has been announced uh, already in Luke chapter 1. In Luke chapter 1, God announces the birth of two babies. Extremely important children to his plan. Uh, One of those babies had parents that would be Zechariah and Elizabeth, and that's who we're looking at today. And one of those babies will have a mother named Mary, who is pledged to be married to Joseph. And um, one son's birth this week, one son's birth next week. So we see the birth of John in 57 and 58. So it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, and she gave birth to a son. So um, it was back nine months earlier that God... Uh, encountered Zechariah in the temple in Jerusalem and told Zechariah that he would have a son and that he should name that child uh, John. That was nine months earlier. Um, Luke chapter 1, verses uh, 13 and 14. And this is uh, what Gabriel said to, to Zechariah. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You are to call him John. And he will be a joy and a delight to you. And many, many will rejoice because of his birth. And so that's the message for Zechariah. And now it has come to pass. Verse 58. Her neighbors, Elizabeth's neighbors and relatives, heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy. Remember, Elizabeth was an older woman, and she had prayed, and she could not conceive. And now, uh, she has, in her older age, she has uh, become pregnant and is now to give birth. And uh, the neighbors and the relatives recognize that this is a God thing. You know, these things just don't happen in sort of the natural way. God is at work, and God is the one who's answered prayer. And God now delivers on his promise uh, to them. Elizabeth is to have a baby, and she gave birth to a son. God answered. He delivered on his promise. And now we come to the name issue. And it's pretty simple for us, but it wasn't so simple uh, in Elizabeth's day. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. That was the custom and the practice, and it was circumcising a male child on the eighth day was a practice of faith on the part of the parents in obedience to the Abrahamic covenant. This demonstrated they were trusting God and what God had said. And so parents uh, circumcised their boys on the eighth day, and this was normal for a Jewish family. And so, they, and this is when uh, children were typically named. And um, and on the eighth day, they they came to circumcise the child. They, well, it would be Zechariah and Elizabeth, but all these relatives and a lot of the friends and neighbors. 
And they were going to name him Zechariah. That is, the neighbors and the relatives. They got this figured out. They know what Zechariah and Elizabeth are supposed to do. And so they have this plan. This is what you should do, Elizabeth. You, sh- you must name him Zechariah. But his mother, verse 60, spoke up and said, No, he used to be called John. This is what mothers do. They stand up for their kids. This woman knows her boundaries, and no one is going to step on her boundaries, and she is not going to cave in to family who want to pick a different name, or the neighbors who thinks uh, she should do it in a certain way. And she said, no, he is to be called John. So the neighbors and the relatives go around her. They said to her, there's no one among your relatives who has this last name, as if... um, Elizabeth, I'm not sure you understand here. Um, Elizabeth, we're going to ask your husband. You know, he's the head of the family. You're not going to just name this child John. And verse 62, and then they made signs to his father. Remember, Zechariah was not able to speak because at the temple, he wasn't sure about the promise God made to him. He sort of questioned it, and so the angel said, Okay, Zechariah, you're not going to uh, be able to speak. And um, then they made signs to the father, because he couldn't speak, to find out what he would like to name the child. And he asked for a writing tablet, and that had been some kind of wax, flat instrument. And he would use some kind of stylus, whether it was wood or metal. And... Uh, to everyone's astonishment, his name is John, Zechariah said. Mom and dad were in agreement. There's a pretty good lesson right here for us. Mom and dad were in agreement. They had talked about this. They understood what God was doing. To name him John would have been a little um, kind of off the track if it wasn't a God thing, if it well, if God hadn't placed this on their hearts and they agreed together and they wanted to follow through, you know, after nine months, it might be easy just to, okay, we can call him Zechariah. But nope, it's going to be John. They're on the same page together. God is leading and not their family or their friends when it comes to naming their child. And then the sign, verses 64 through 66, and immediately his mouth was open and his tongue set free And he began to speak, praising God. And let's go back and look at Luke chapter 1, verse 20. And this is what the angel said to uh, Zechariah in the temple. He says, and now, this is because Zechariah didn't didn't trust what what Gabriel had told him. And now you'll be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens. It's going to be that nine-month period. Because you did not believe my words, which will come true at the appointed time. And now it is just come true at the appointed time. And he began to speak, praising God. And all the neighbors were filled with awe because that's exactly what should happen when God does a miracle. This was a sign. It means it was a God thing. It was more than just an older couple that happened to get pregnant. What are the chances? 
It was a God thing, a God-planned child, and a God-answer to prayer. And it was a sign, and the neighbors were filled with awe. And not only that, to mark this child, Zechariah wasn't able to speak. And that was supernatural. That was a God thing. And now Zechariah is speaking just like the angel said he would, and that is a God thing. And that's got people's attention. And all the neighbors were filled with awe. And throughout the whole hill country of Judea, people were talking about these things. And so think about this. This child isn't raised yet. It's going to be 30 years before he appears publicly. And there's going to be a little groundswell of talk about him. This special child. God at work. What does this mean? We don't know. And one day later, some of this will make sense to some of them. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. And so these people got the message. This is a God thing. God is with him. The big question is, what kind of child will John be? We know that God's favor or God's hand is in his life. Secondly, is the prophecy about the one who prepares the way. Prophecy about the one. Verses 67 through 80. And we look at verse uh, 67. And this is the praise for the coming of the Messiah, the Christ. Now, let me just uh, comment here. Messiah. The one who is coming. The Jewish people have long been waiting for this promised one in the Old Testament. He is called in Hebrew, the Messiah. Hebrew, Mashiach. We say Messiah. In the Greek language, the word for Messiah is Christ or the Christ. Those words mean the anointed one. Jesus is the anointed one. The Messiah, the Christ. Remember, Christ is not his last name. It's his title. We say Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus So uh, the praise coming is for Messiah right here. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. So Luke wants us to understand the nature of Zechariah's words now are empowered by God, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And his words are going to be the revelation that God wants people to hear on the spot. And he says, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, Because he has come to his people and redeemed them. Zechariah is now speaking prophetically. Um, He has come to his people. God is at work. And this hasn't been fulfilled all yet. But right now, this movement of God, beginning with Zechariah and Elizabeth and their baby, who will be is John. And then through another couple, Mary and Joseph. And they will have a baby named Jesus next week. And uh, he has come to his people and redeemed them. Redemption hasn't happened yet. Zechariah sees it, though. He understands it. This is now. This is coming. God is redeeming his people. And the redemption will come at the cross when Jesus dies on the cross and pays the penalty uh, for our sin. Verse 69, he has raised up a horn of salvation. The word horn is a metaphor for power. And this refers to a person. He has raised up the power of salvation, and that would be the Messiah, the Christ. For us, 
in the house of his servant David. David? How did David get in? Well, David, remember, is a great king. He lives 900 years earlier. And God made a promise to David. Sometimes we call it the Davidic covenant. God made a promise to David about one of his descendants. And we can see that God made this promise in 2 Samuel 7, verses 13 through 14. I've looked at this many times. It's really important, and it's, it's, a, it's, it's a Davidic covenant. It's, God, it's a promise God made to David about his descendant. When your days are over, David, when, you're, when you die, when you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring, a descendant, to, to succeed you your own flesh and blood. So he's going to be connected uh, to the family line of David. That's important. That's why God's people spend so much time tracing uh, family uh, lineage. We get tired of reading the begats. But that's an offic- there's an official record until we get to Messiah. Uh, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. So he's going to be a king. David was a king. He's going to have a, a, a son who is a king, and he's going to be a great king. And he is the one who will build a house for my name. Well, David's going to have a, nun, a son, Solomon, immediately, and he's going to be a great king, maybe, maybe the wealthiest king of God's people and uh, up to this point. And he's going to build a house, and it's going to be a temple in Jerusalem. But this is not the one. This is not the one. There's going to be a different kind of temple. By the way, in... Ephesians chapter 2, the church is called the temple of God. And uh, I will establish his kingdom. So in verse 12, it's a God thing. There's going to be a great king. It's going to be descendant of David, but he's not going to humanly, by his own power, establish his kingdom. There is a king that's coming that only God is establishing his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. When has that happened? Never happened. Didn't happen when Jesus came the first time. It will happen. It's coming. He's coming again. Next page. Okay. Thank you. Sometimes I can't remember if I'm still reading the same passage. The promise of deliverance with the coming Messiah. Um, Verse 71 through 75. And uh, he continues to talk about the Messiah, salvation, that this, this Messiah will bring salvation from our enemies, from the hand of all those who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies, to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness Him before him, all our days. Now, a lot of you know that this was really an important concept for Israel in the first century. They knew God was going to deliver them at some point from their enemies. There were a lot of passages in the Old Testament that, that speak to this. Now, in the first century, you have Israel, this little weak state, called the, it was a puppet state. They had been invaded by Rome, and Rome was living in their streets. And Rome had the final say about Israel, not Israel or not Israel's king. And so they were hoping for a Messiah, 
They were hoping for some great general was going to come riding in on a white horse. That's going to happen in Revelation 19, by the way. You know, like, like a Roman general. And he was just going to kill all these Romans. And there's going to be a great victory. And there's going to be blood everywhere. And Israel will be the champion. So that's what they were hoping for because God was going to send this great king. Um, all the way back in Genesis chapter 2, about 1900 years before 22... About 1,900 years before the birth of Jesus, uh, God made a promise to, to Abraham. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven the second time and said, I swear by myself. So God says, I am the one responsible. I will accomplish this. This is what I will do. It's a God thing. I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, you know, it's Genesis 22 where uh, Abraham is tested. Will he be willing to give up his own son? And as hard as it was, Abraham was willing to do that, and God didn't. God spared and, and, and gave provision, and um, he didn't have to give up his son, but because his heart was obedient, um, he said, next, next slide, I will surely bless you, and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. So here's one of those really, the very first time where God promises that one day he's going to throw off all the enemies. And it comes up in other passages, but Israel clung to this. God's going to deliver us. God's going to deliver us. God's going to deliver us. And then verse 18, through your offspring, all the nations on earth will be blessed. There's a similar promise in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. It would be through a descendant of Abraham that all of the world, all nations would be blessed by God. Not just one nation, not just Israel, but all nations. Jesus Christ is the answer. Jesus Christ is that descendant. And it's confirmed by the Apostle Paul clearly in Galatians 3.16. In another very important passage that we see at Christmas time, it's Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And we love this one. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. That's a prominent on Christmas cards. It's a good passage. I love it. The whole Isaiah 9. For us, a child is born. This is going to be a human baby. It's going to be born. Luke chapter 2. To us, a son is given. This is not the human part. It's the for God so loved the world that he gave part. His son. This is a human and a God person. We call it the incarnation. For us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. Well, when has that ever happened? It hasn't. Jesus came and the government was not on his shoulders. A lot of people were disappointed. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is not just any son that was born, any child that was born. This was God. This is who he's talking about. Next slide. 
of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. That hasn't happened. He will reign on David's throne over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. That hasn't happened. But in Revelation 19, when he comes back, he's going to overthrow a lot of enemies. Revelation 20, he's going to make the final uh, execution of all of God's enemies. And he will establish a king on David's throne who will rule forever in an eternal kingdom with justice and righteousness. And God will accomplish it. It will be the zeal of the Lord Almighty. Um, and then verses 76 and 77, we see the role of John. Zechariah now speaks about his own son. And, and you, my child, you will be called the prophet of the Most High. The prophet of the Most High God. John has the role of being the spokesman for God. He is going to speak prophetically. He's going to make announcements with the authority of God. And his role is going, to, is going to be, for you will go before the Lord and prepare the way for him. Meaning you're going to go before the Lord Jesus and you're going to prepare the way for him. And, and so John is going to be this unusual figure. We probably wouldn't like John. We would probably think, he, John, you're too far out. I like to, I like to be a little more kind and comfortable and gracious and John you're you're kind of weird but John dressed in an unusual way John separated himself from the religious establishment in Jerusalem and he's going to grow up in the wilderness and he is going to call on God's people and he's going to warn them of the wrath to come and he's going to call them to turn their hearts back to God we call that repentance to turn your hearts back and John isn't going to be kind about it. He's just going to speak the truth and he's going to be powerful and he's going to be Holy Spirit inspired and thousands of people are going to come to hear John and they're going to turn back to God and they will be baptized. That's why he's called John the Baptist. We're going to, we're going to learn more about him later because in verse 77, he's going to give people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. And John is going to give people an opportunity to repent and turn from their sins. And he's going to offer them forgiveness because of what is to come. They need to get ready. And John is just trying to, just getting a group of people ready so that when Jesus shows up, they're going to pay attention. And that's why multitudes went out into the wilderness to hear Jesus. Because John had helped prepare the way. The coming good news, verses 78 and 79 he says, because of the tender mercy of our God, this is Zechariah, by which the rising sun comes to us from heaven. Now, John, this, you know, this is kind of poetry, it's kind of prophetic, and it's sometimes kind of hard, but this is a metaphor for Jesus. It's a metaphor for Messiah. Um, it's because of God's tender mercy. The rising sun will come to us from heaven. The Son of God is coming from heaven to earth. Verse 79, to shine on those living in darkness and, uh, and, and in the shadow of death, those living in spiritual darkness, those who are without knowledge of the true and living God, those who aren't walking in faith, 
those who are facing eternal death, eternal punishment, the shadow of death, not just physical death here, to guide our feet into the path of peace. Because Jesus is going to be the way and the truth and the life. And he's going to invite people to follow him, to follow that leader. Isaiah uh, chapter 9 kind of pictures this in verses 1 and 2. This is eight centuries before the birth of Christ. And Isaiah writes, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled. And so right now, Isaiah is going to pick over 800 years before a specific geography that God is going to touch. There will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Zebulun was one of the sons of Jacob. Naphtali was one of the sons of Jacob. And they were given land. Their families were given land in Israel. And the land was divided into 12 segments. So these are two of the segments of Israel. Naphtali and Zebulun. But in the future, he will honor the Galilee of the nations. Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, in the north of Israel, in the surrounding area, Right then, in the first century, is uh, basically uh, in, has been invaded by non-Israelis, the nations, Gentiles. At that time, Rome would be high on the list. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea, sea of the Sea of Galilee, beyond the Jordan. So. West of the Jordan River is what he's referring to. Uh, The people walking in darkness, spiritual darkness, have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. So what Isaiah is saying, there's a time coming when there's going to be a light that appears in this specific location and is going to enable people to walk in the light and to see and discover truth. Okay, and I think we have a map, of course, we need one. If you look up to the north, I hope you can see it. The area of Naphtali would be up at the top of your screen. Right below it is Zebulun, and look where Nazareth is, where Jesus grew up. And Isaiah 9 is saying, a light's going to appear there. If you go right to the east of there, you can see the Jordan River, and just slightly to the north, the Sea of Galilee. That's where Jesus is going to hang out. Most of his ministry is going to occur around the Sea of Galilee and in that area. Now let's look at John eight twelve. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. He's making it pretty clear. This is what God said was happening. This is said what God said was coming. And this is now Fulfilled. Whoever follows me will never walk in, in darkness. Whoever follows our Lord, whoever follows our leader, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then we uh, end the passage in verse 80, and we just notice the growth of John. Luke wants us to know that. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. So not not a lot's going to be known about John at this after this. He's just going to disappear 
Luke wants us to know he's going to grow up in the wilderness and at some point he's going to appear publicly. Um, and when you, when you look at Luke chapter 1 here, look at how God has orchestrated history to bring his son. Uh, promises made back to Abraham. Promises uh, made to David. Promises made through Isaiah. Promises given to Zechariah and to Mary. And then Jesus was born. And he came into this world. He fulfilled a lot of promises and he died for you and for me. And God has orchestrated your history so that at some point you would have the opportunity to place your faith in Jesus. I hope you don't take that for granted. That God loves you so much that he would do that for you. Let me uh, suggest uh, four lessons this morning. Four lessons. The first one is this. Don't let family or friends pressure you to do something that is contrary to the will of God. Now, your friends and your family will have good ideas, sometimes good advice, but not necessarily every time. And whenever they suggest something that's contrary to the word of God, you do what you think God wants you to do. And uh, that's what Elizabeth, uh, exactly what she did. And um, she would have no part of the pressure coming from her family and from friends. Uh, she wanted God's best for her child. And God had spoken his desire for, for their child. And Elizabeth and Zechariah chose to do what God wanted. Now, I don't know if God is going to speak to you about naming your child. But God has spoken pretty clearly about a lot of things that he wants for you. And you're going to get pressure, sometimes from family, sometimes from your friends or relatives to do something that's not necessarily pleasing to God. In fact, it may be contrary to God. There's all kinds of things that, that um, people get pressured to do, whether it's how they spend their money, um, who they date, um, when they have children, um, how to handle their social life with things like alcohol or, or using drugs, um, Honoring God with your body, whether you, people will have sex outside of marriage or not. There's a lot of pressure that comes from family and friends and just from our culture. Romans 12.2 reminds us of this. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. The pattern of this world is about our culture. What happens in our culture. Now let me just say, culture is not necessarily evil. Okay, but there is an evil pattern in culture. And what God is saying through the Apostle Paul here is don't get sucked in. Don't be conformed to that pressure to be like somebody other than a committed follower of Christ. Uh, and how do you do this? He says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's not, you just don't get there and stay there. You know, now I'm transformed. I'm locked in. No, it's an ongoing, a daily thing. Renew your mind. It's a walk, one step at a time. And uh, the way I do that is I want to stay fresh in the word of God. I need that spiritual nourishment for my soul. It's not just information. It's life-giving truth. 
It encourages me. It reminds me. It gives me strength. It gives me hope. That's just one part. It's, it's about a daily walk. It's about, I just need to be, remind myself. I need to remind myself all the time to submit to the Lordship of Christ because I just like to jump and make decisions and run things and do things, just take actions without necessarily thinking. And I just need to remind myself who's, who's Lord and who is the servant. And he's not my servant. And it's, it's about uh, praying and it's about renewing your mind. It's about staying connected, you know, hanging out with other believers. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says not to avoid assembling together which is the habit of some, because what happens when, when the church comes together, there's like spiritual sparks that sort of ignite and stimulate us to love and good deeds. I need that. If I, if I get separated, I get off on my own. And uh, fortunately, because of my job, that doesn't happen very often. But it's just easy to disconnect or, or to get sloppy with my own spiritual life. So don't be conformed, but have your mind renewed. The second lesson is, remember, obedience bring God, brings God's favor for daily living. Don't think of that, just one jumbo blessing that you're hoping for, but just think about daily living. What do you need daily to handle life? Obedience brings God's favor, God's blessing, God's grace for daily living, the strength for daily living. You know, Zechariah and Elizabeth were faithful people. Year after year after year, they were God-honoring people. And God didn't answer their prayer. They wanted to have a child. They wanted to have a son. And God didn't answer. And they just kept being faithful. And then God did answer. And Zechariah and Elizabeth were faithful people. When God said, once you name your child John, and the pressure came, maybe not a big deal, they knew. We're together on this. We're going to name our child John. Just obedience in the little things and in the big things. Um, and that's what God wants for us. Because when we obey, little things, big things, He gives grace. He gives His strength for the future. We grow stronger with obedience. John 15, Jesus said this, verses 10 and 11. He says, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I've kept my father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete or full at its fullest. And uh, this is like sort of counterculture, you know, counterintuitive. To think that if I if I'm a good if I'm good I'm talking about being good I'm talking about obeying Jesus, His love. There, yes, He loves you, and this isn't about losing your salvation or getting a better salvation. This is about ongoing day by day for followers of Christ. I want to be uh, close enough to God so that I'm in a place of blessing. So if when He decides to do something, I'm ready. I'm there. I'm available. And he says, I've told you this so that my joy. It's not based on circumstances. It's, you know, it's not on, about happy circumstances. May or may not be happy circumstances. But how do you have joy when, think, when things are gloomy? 
How do you have joy when other people look at this and say, this is hopeless? No, it's not hopeless. It might be hard. But to be honest, it's hard, but it's not hopeless. And I, and I do have real joy because I know who wins, I know who's in charge, and I know who's helping me today. Uh, number three, God keeps his promises to his people. Trust him. I hope you can see, pretty obvious, God kept his promises about sending John. He said, I'm going to, he prophesied that in Malachi and Isaiah, he would send one who would prepare the way. He, he told Zechariah he would have a son and he would prepare the way. And John was born. And by the way, John did prepare the way. And he prophesied to Abraham and to David. And, and he prophesied uh, through Isaiah. And he told Mary that she would have a son. And by the way, she will. And, and his name is going to be Jesus. And she trusted him. God keeps his promises to his people. Hebrews 11.6 says this. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. It's just impossible. And even after you come to faith in Christ, he wants you to exercise faith for your daily living. He wants you to trust him each day. He's the one who provides. He's the one who answers prayer. He's the one who's going to lead you, whether it's finding your mate, or getting your next job, or helping you decide whether you should move. He's the one who's going to guide. He's the one who is going to lead. I want to be in a place that's pleasing to him so that if he's going to give the answer, I can hear, and I'm going to be there. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Fourth lesson, God uses individual people to share the good news about his son, Jesus. God used Zechariah before um, his family and friends to share the good news. Think about that. John is born. Zechariah is available. He's empowered by the Holy Spirit. And his friends and his neighbors right on the spot get to hear about John and they get to hear, more importantly, about Jesus and what is to come. Salvation is coming. Good news is coming. The light of the world is coming. Zechariah got to, uh, got to announce that. John will grow up. And his job is to prepare the way. And he's going to point people to Jesus. And he's going to tell them about Jesus coming. And what that's going to mean. And people are going to turn to God and get their hearts ready. And he points people to Jesus. One individual. And you know, that's God just wants to use you and me as individuals to be a part of this. In the book of Acts, we talked about Jesus said, you shall be my witnesses. A witness just tells the truth. You know, that's what God wants us to do. He just wants us to tell the truth about what we know, not what we don't know. You don't have to be the smartest person in the world or know all about theology. What do you know about Jesus? And can you share that with Somebody else, just tell your story. How does how has God worked in your life? That's that's individually pointing people to Jesus. Um, Jesus is the light of the world. We saw that. 
Look what he said in Matthew 5. Do we have a Matthew 5? Okay, we don't. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 5. He said, you are the light of the world. He's the light of the world. He says, now, you, he's saying this to his followers, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. That's not normal. If you've got a light, you want, you want to see in the darkness. Otherwise, don't waste your light. Instead, they put it on a stand that gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, here's his whole point, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You and I are the light of the world because of Jesus. And as you and I follow him, the leader, our lives can shine brightly. And uh, when when people see the light, people will be drawn to you. I'm not saying every person is going to, but they're going to take notice if when Jesus shows up in your life. When there's something different about you that is explained because you have a relationship with Christ. God can use you to be good news. And God can use you to share that good news. And that's what he's saying. Let them see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Because what's going to happen in between seeing your good deeds and, and that glorifying your Father in heaven, that's worship. Somebody has become a worshiper. Somebody's life has been changed and transformed by Jesus Christ. Somebody has shared the gospel. And somebody has become a worshiper. And God wants to use us as, as individuals. So let's think about this. We have a little video clip. Okay, here's a question. Do you believe you have a personal responsibility to share your faith? Surveys have shown that the overwhelming majority of you would answer yes. Okay, so what about this question? Have you shared your faith with anyone in the last six months? Surveys have shown that a majority of you would answer this question? No. I guess it's just not as easy as it seems, or at least as easy as we'd like it to be. Well, here's another question. How many times have you personally invited an unchurched person to church? Now this seems simple, right? And yet, surveys tell us that almost half of you would answer zero. I mean, there are lots of reasons why we don't, right? Like, maybe it still feels a little awkward and uncomfortable. Or maybe we're just unsure how effective it is. Or we just expect to hear them say, well, no. Okay, so listen to this. When people are asked why they came to church in the first place, the vast majority of them say, I began attending because someone invited me. It wasn't the music or the pastor. It wasn't the childcare, the youth program, or the building. Although these are all great things, important and valuable things, the main thing that got most of you up and through that door the first time wasn't any of these. It was an invitation. Christmas will be here soon, and it's the perfect time to share with others what your faith is all about. And it can all start with one more simple question. Want to come to church on Sunday? Let's change the stats and let God change hearts and lives this Christmas. 
And let's start with something simple. An invitation. The actual statistic is 81% of people will come if they're invited. What do you think of that? Let's stand. I'd like to pray. Father, I thank you for uh, your faithfulness and uh, how you have worked through history and how you uh, worked in Luke chapter 1 and um, announced the birth of John and announced the birth of Jesus and prepared parents. And thank you for their faithfulness. And God, may we be people who learn from your word and are encouraged and have hope about the future because you keep your promises. And God, um, just enable us to live in a way that, and um, to reach out and to love people and to um, invite them to get to know you. For Jesus' sake, amen.